Our Old Testament lesson this morning is Psalm 41, Psalm 41, verses 1 through 13. This is for the director of music, a Psalm of David. And before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which you have given to us. Or we ask that you would help us to hear it. We pray that you would, by your word and by your spirit, shape us inform us and grow us into the people that you have made us to be. I pray you'd help us um, not simply to hear the word and, uh, and not put it into action and so deceive ourselves. But Lord, help us to hear it and to live it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 41. Blessed are those who have regard for the weak. The Lord delivers them in times of trouble. The Lord protects and preserves them. They are counted among the blessed in the land. He does not give them over to the desire of their foes. The Lord sustains them on their sickbed and restores them from their bed of illness. I said, have mercy on me, Lord. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? When one of them comes to see me, he speaks falsely, while his heart gathers slander. Then he goes out and spreads it around. All my enemies whisper together against me. They imagine the worst for me, saying, A vile disease has afflicted him. He will never get up from the place where he lies. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. But may you have mercy on me, Lord. Raise me up, that I may repay them. I know that you are pleased with me, for my enemy does not triumph over me. Because of my integrity, you uphold me and set me in your presence forever. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Turning then to our New Testament lesson from 1 John, uh, starting in chapter 2, verse 28, and going on through chapter 3, verse 10. John continues his letter this way, saying, And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this morning, I want to begin by telling you a story that I know many of you have heard before. But first of all, it's a fun story. Second of all, it is uh, something that will help us, I think, in understanding our times and also the passage we're going to be looking at today. This is a story that comes from my childhood, and it is back when my brother, who's about two years younger than me, uh, was four or five years old, and uh, he was being babysat by one of the neighbors. She had to run some errands, so she put him and her kids in the back seat of her car, and she drives to run errands. One of the errands she had was to stop at someone's house and drop off, pick up a check, something like that. So she's up at the front door, but has left the kids in the car. It's winter. She leaves the car running, so the heat stays on. While she is up at the door, her kids start messing around and getting to where they're not supposed to be. You know the type. (laughs) Children. And uh, one of her sons actually removes the, uh, the parking brake, And it was an inclined driveway, and so down they start rolling backwards. They start rolling backwards. She notices from the uh, front door that the car is rolling backwards with children inside it. (laughs) Not how that's supposed to go. And it goes backwards, goes across the highway that this uh, driveway was coming from, and then across the highway and down the, um, the steep embankment onto the frozen lake. Not good. Not good at all. <laughs> and so, of course, she is freaking out watching this with the kids. And, um, and the people driving by, everybody was okay. Somebody driving by saw this happen and pulled over and went down and got the kids out. And just after they got the kids out of the car, the ice cracked and the car sank. So the car was done, but <laughs> the kids were saved. So here's the fun part, though is uh, after you know they're okay, and you don't have to worry about that anymore, then you get to talk to my brother and say, what was it like in the car (laughs) when you guys were doing this? How was everybody? And he's like, oh, they were going crazy. The other kids in the car, they were just screaming their heads off. Well, what what about you? you, No, I was fine. What what do you mean? Yeah, I had on my seatbelt. Well, then... (laughs) So it is a fun story. Uh, That is the way it went. And uh, the reason I share it again is because I feel like where we are in in our country today, and this has kind of been going for a while, but uh, this is where we are today, it seems like, is I think that uh, a lot of people see kind of what is happening in our country and in the world, and it feels like everything is out of control. It feels like we are kids in a car that is hurtling down backwards and going down a steep embankment and across the highway, down an embankment, onto a frozen lake, only to then sink and be gone forever. And there are reactions to this out-of-control feeling. And some of the reactions are people just freak out and scream. (laughs) And maybe you're one of those. Maybe you've seen that. Then there are others who say, uh, you know, I got to do something. I don't know. I'm a kid. I don't know how to drive this thing, but hey, I'm going to try. And so we got people who are, you know, pushing buttons on the radio and air conditioner, changing things like crazy because I don't know, better than doing nothing, right? (laughs) Maybe. And then you have other people who seem just 
very calm as they hurtle down backwards in this out-of-control vehicle because, hey, I got on my seatbelt. And I think this image captures how a lot of people feel about the times that we are living in right now, that everything's out of control, people respond differently, but it is all out of control. That we can agree on, right? I don't think so. And I think people look at Christians sometimes and think of us as those who are just, uh, hey, I've got on my seatbelt. <laughs> yeah, it's all out of control, but I got on my seatbelt. <laughs> I think there's a much better way of viewing uh, the situation that we are in, the times that we are living in, and we will get to that later. But I want to leave you with this image for now and then take us to a passage in John chapter 18 where we see some real uh, issues of control. Looking at a time when things appear to be very out of control. And yet, there's more going on. So uh, this is John chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. Uh, We will read first, and then we'll talk our way through it. So this is, uh, yeah, John 18, verses 1 through 14. This is right after Jesus has had his um, evening with his disciples. He knows he's going to the cross the next day. He's told them as much. And nobody's wanted to hear it. And, uh, and he's, he washed their feet. He, um, he told them, greater love has no one than to lay down their life for their friends. He has said, I'm going away. I'm going to prepare a place for you. He has told them, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit when I go to be with you. He has said, um, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And he has prayed for them. He has prayed for his disciples. He's prayed for the world. He's prayed for us. And then, John 18, When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with him. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, let, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers, with its commander and the Jewish officials, arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. 
All right. This is a story that you are probably pretty familiar with, of Jesus being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, the night before he goes to the cross, of Judas betraying uh, Jesus, of, uh, of soldiers present, and of Peter swinging wildly his sword. These are, these are familiar stories. Um, and you probably have pictures in your mind of what that looks like. But I want to take us through this in a way that helps us to see more of what it would have looked like, but also some of what it meant, what was really going on in these moments. And so first of all, when we look at uh, just verse 1, when Jesus finished praying, he leaves his disciples, he crossed the Kidron Valley, and on the other side there's a garden, and he and his disciples go into it. Looking at the issue of... uh, kind of who's in control of the situation. You see, right at the beginning, Jesus and his disciples are going freely wherever they want to go. Jesus leads them to, the, to this garden and in they go. No problem. If you skip down to the end, we see something else, don't we? When Jesus leaves the garden, he leaves arrested and bound. Well, who's in control there? And it looks like, from all outward uh, signs, that Jesus is no longer in control. That now the soldiers are in control, and he's going to go uh, where they want, not where he wants. Well, how do we get from the first to the end? And of course, it has to do with the betrayal of Judas. Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, verse 2, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials. And the chief priests and the Pharisees, they were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. This is uh, that betrayal moment. We get some more details of this whole thing in the other Gospels. But John is kind of uh, assuming you've already read those. And now he wants you to see more to the story. Some of the things that he remembered from having been there. And he highlights Judas' betrayal. He mentions the, um, the people that are there, the, this detachment of soldiers. Now, when you picture this scene in your mind, how many soldiers are we talking about here? Five? Ten? Two hundred? Six hundred? Here's the thing. Uh... There is some ambiguity uh, where it's difficult to tell from how it's talked about, but it's basically somewhere between 200 and 600 soldiers. Does that sound like overkill to anybody? That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people who are armed, uh, ready to take, just to arrest one person. On the other hand, consider the situation from their perspective. They have no idea he's going to go willingly. As far as they know, he is going to try everything he can to not be arrested. They know he's got a band of followers that are with him. He's got, you know, at least, he's got 11 other guys who are there, at least, 
And typically, everywhere Jesus goes, he's surrounded by crowds. And so now here they are going into this kind of hillside, mountain, (laughs) garden area in the dark of night. They're trying to get one guy out of all of these people. Who knows how many are going to be there? And if they all start scattering, we've got to have enough people to get them all, arrest them all, sort them out later, right? That seems to be what's going on when they show up with this much. Plus, don't forget, people have seen Jesus do some pretty amazing things. There's no telling what he's going to pull uh, in this moment when they come to arrest him. And so they come with hundreds of armed people. And so it looks like uh, Jesus and his disciples, where it's just the, uh, just the 12 of them, are seriously outnumbered. And then John tells us in verse 4 that Jesus knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? I mean, how cool is that? Right? (laughs) Jesus knows that this is what's going to happen to him. And he doesn't run and hide. He doesn't uh, do any of the things that they're expecting. He doesn't try to disguise himself and send one of the other disciples out in his place. Nothing like that. None of the scheming that people typically do but he walks out face to face and says, who does he want? And when they say Jesus of Nazareth, then he, uh, and he says, I am he. And they go back. They drew back and they fell to the ground. When Jesus says, I am he here, that is a way of just identifying himself, but it's more than that. This is another time that John is telling us of the words of Jesus actually just being, I am. And we have talked about this as we've gone through the Gospel of John, how um, throughout the Gospel of John, there are seven times that Jesus says, I am dot, 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 as in, I am the bread of life, or I am the good shepherd, or I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. All these, there's seven of those. But there are also seven times where Jesus just says, I am, period. Which, in one sense, may just be a way of identifying himself. Oh, yeah, I'm the one you're looking for. On the other hand, seven times (laughs) uh, that he says it like this. And to a Jewish audience um, who would have known the meaning of, of that particular phrase. It goes all the way back to the time that Moses is talking uh, with God at the burning bush, and God is sending him to Egypt to say, you know, let my people go. And Moses says, what am I going to tell the people? Who do I say sent me? And God said to Moses in Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. This is what you are to tell the Israelites. I am sent me to you. This uh, is not only found there, that's where it kind of begins, but this way of God uh, saying who he is is something that then carries forward through the rest of the Old Testament. And then we find it in the book of John where Jesus is saying it seven times, I am. This is the same John, or the same 
uh, Jesus that John presents in chapter 1 when he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The whole way through, John has been pointing out the ways in which Jesus makes it clear that he is fully human, but also fully divine. And this is one of those moments. This is one of those moments. Think about that. In the garden, while he's being arrested, this is one of those moments that Jesus chooses to identify himself and say, I am. And what is the response? They draw back and fall down. Who's in control? So while they are on the ground, Jesus, still upright, (laughs) says again, who is it you want? I have to imagine this next time they say it, there's like a little stuttering. (laughs) Jesus of Nazareth. (laughs) And Jesus answered, I told you. Again, he says, I am. I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Now listen to this. Maybe when we read through this at first, that just seems, well, of course, that's the way it went. That Jesus is like, oh, yeah, let these guys go. I'm the one you're looking for. That works. But do you realize that he is in the position of actually giving orders to this group of soldiers? Do you realize that they actually obey his orders? (laughs) Who's in control? And yet, as much as John telling the story shows us that in this moment, Jesus is absolutely in control of the situation. We know of at least one person who was present who did not understand that. And that is one of our favorite disciples, Peter. (laughs) He doesn't understand it, does he? That Jesus is in control. It looks like the kind of the wheels have fallen off of this whole thing. And that now here we are going, you know, Go back to the earlier illustration, downhill, backwards, out of control. He's been following Jesus around for three years. He has seen Jesus uh, speak and touch people and heal those who need to be healed. He has seen him make those who are unclean clean again. He has seen him feed people who were hungry in the middle of the wilderness with very little food, and he feeds them to being full and even to the point that they have leftovers. He has seen uh, Jesus actually raise people who are dead to life again. Peter has seen all of this. And now in this moment, he sees Jesus getting arrested. And it appears that he's just going to go along with it because I guess we're outnumbered or something. They've got weapons. And so Peter takes it on himself to say, not on my watch. (laughs) He's not going like this. And so Peter pulls out his sword and he starts, you know, swinging at ears. Okay, probably not. He's probably trying to take the guy's head off. But Peter's a fisherman, not a trained (laughs) fighter. And so his sword skills aren't that great. Which, you got to think, that had to be part of the equation, right? If you're not much of a swordsman and you're going to take on at least 200 trained swordsmen, what did he think was going to happen? 
This is not going to end well. But I'm not sure that there was a lot of thinking going on. I think it was more of a reaction. I think this, what is going on for Peter, is more of that fight-or-flight instinct. And for Peter, he's got a lot of that as far as just the, you just do first and think about it later. You speak first (laughs) and think about it later. And I think this is one of the reasons why he's kind of one of the favorite disciples of people's because we can all relate to that. We've all been there. Uh, Some of us are there all the time. And even for those who aren't uh, as much, we've all been there. And I think this is one of those moments where he panics. It looks like things are out of control. It feels like things are out of control. And so he starts fighting. The fight instinct kicks in. He grabs his sword and he starts, I'll just do what I can. And maybe go down swinging. And Jesus stops it. Jesus stops it. I want you to hear why he stops it. Jesus commanded Peter, verse 11, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? You hear that? Why is Peter not supposed to fight for Jesus? Because it's not out of control. This is the way that Jesus is going to walk. This is the way that he's been telling Peter he was going to walk. And every time he told Peter, when we get to Jerusalem, they're going to arrest me, they're going to bind me, they're going to beat me, and they're going to kill me. And every time he would tell Peter that, Peter's response was, don't talk like that. Don't say things like that. That's not going to happen to you. Because he couldn't accept it. Because that wasn't Peter's way. But it is Jesus' way. And so Peter has to try to assure, or Jesus has to try to assure Peter, things are not out of control. This is what I said was going to happen. This is the way that I have been walking on purpose, heading to this moment. I am not going unwillingly. This is the cup that I have to drink. And I'm going to drink it. I'm going to do this for you. Put your sword away. I've got this. Now think about this. From Peter's perspective, how hard is that moment? When you have all the adrenaline running through your system, you've got a sword in your hand, and Jesus is like, now put it away. You're like, but... I mean, I know I missed on that first one, but I, I can get them still. No, put it away. How hard is that? To say, okay, I'm not going to do it my way, Jesus. I'll do it your way, even though your way looks really dumb from my perspective. Because from Peter's perspective, I think it did. This is not the way, Jesus. What are you doing? And we're going to take a look uh, next week at kind of where Peter goes from here. And he spirals. It really seems to him like things are out of control. But I want you to look again at the, uh, the final verses here, 12 to 14. The detachment of soldiers with its commander and... Oh, wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. No, no. We're going to get there in a second. I've got to tell you first about, um, about the two disciples who were in the garden that night who both betrayed Jesus. 
because this is a comparison that we see uh, in all the Gospels as they present Jesus' final week and they lead up to uh, going to the cross and beyond. There is this, like, Judas and Peter parallel situation going on. Look for it. It's fascinating. But this is one of those moments where you have Judas, who we all say, yes, of course, Judas betrays Jesus. And here he does so with a use of force. He brings all these soldiers. But Peter also betrays Jesus in this moment, doesn't he? And he also does so with a use of force. And what's fascinating is that the two of them are kind of directing their force at different directions, but it doesn't matter because what they're both doing is trying to stop what Jesus is doing. Judas and the soldiers who are with him are trying to stop Jesus from proclaiming himself as the Messiah. Peter, with his use of force, is trying to stop them from killing who he believes to be the Messiah. And Jesus (laughs) is betrayed by both of them. This is why he tells Peter to put his sword away. In both cases, I want to be clear though, in both cases, what Judas and Peter have in common, yes, there's the use of force thing. But beyond that, what they have in common is that they are both doing things their way, not Jesus' way. Jesus has told both of them uh, who he is and what he's about and what he's going to do. And neither one of them liked Jesus' way better than their own way. They preferred their way. That's what they were doing. So here he is betrayed by both of them. And then we get to the end. And it says, the detachment of soldiers with its commander and Jewish Office officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for people. This is why Jesus goes. Because it, it is good. Caiaphas had no idea what he's talking about. But that it was good for one man to die for the people. But not in the way that Caiaphas was thinking about it. Caiaphas was thinking about it in the terms of, well, if we put down this one guy who's causing problems, then maybe we don't have to kill all of them who are following him. However, John has told us from the beginning, in John chapter 1, John the Baptist identifies Jesus as, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Pointing him out from the early days of his ministry as the one who will die for the people. In John's vision that he has in Revelation, he sees uh, one who looks like a lamb who has been slain. This is how Jesus is identified in that vision. Jesus is this lamb who goes willingly to the slaughter. Make no mistake about it. Throughout this whole event, Jesus is the one who is in control of the situation. From Peter's perspective, Jesus looks, it looks like the whole thing is out of control. From Judas's perspective, I think Judas thought he was in control, <laughs> but he wasn't. Jesus was in control of the whole thing. Um, in fact, to the point that uh, Isaiah 55 talks about how this suffering servant will be the one who be led like a lamb to the slaughter, right? 
And that gets picked up in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, there's a man from Ethiopia who's come to Jerusalem. He's got you know, the scroll of Isaiah somehow, and he's reading from it. And he's like, I don't know what in the world I'm reading. Philip comes up next to him. He says, what are you reading? He says, oh, well, here's what it is. And it's from Isaiah 55. And he's led like a lamb to the slaughter. He's like, but I don't even know what he's talking about. Is, he, is the prophet talking about himself? Is he talking about somebody else? I don't know. And says that starting with that very passage, Philip shares with him the good news of Jesus. The good news of the lamb led to the slaughter. The good news of the one who said, no greater love has anyone than this than to lay down their life for their friends. And you are my friends. This is what Jesus said to his disciples earlier that night. And so what do we see in the garden? But him doing exactly that. One further point. And this is something that uh, should leap off the page to us when we first read these words. Verse 1. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Have you ever heard mention of a garden anywhere else in the Bible? Even if you've never read very far through the Bible, if you've made it to page three, you've, you've found a garden. There's the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden where we have Adam and Eve and what happens in that garden. First of all, you have God walking with his people. But then you have a breakdown as they choose their own way over his way. Do you see how this story is layered on top of that story? That you see that Judas and Peter and all of us are in the line of Adam and Eve where we choose our own way instead of the way of God? That's what's happening here. That's the breakdown of Judas. That's the breakdown of Peter. It's the breakdown of Adam. It's the breakdown of Eve. It's the breakdown of all humanity. All but one. That's what's going on here. Jesus is the new Adam. Jesus is the true human who in this garden walks with his God and follows where he leads his way, even when everybody else goes a different way. This is why Jesus is uh, in control of the situation to the point that even though uh, there are hundreds of soldiers there, he says, hey guys, let them go. And they're like, okay, what? Hey guys, take me now. Go ahead and arrest me. Take me to Pilate. Beat me, spit on me. Give me all the humiliation and shame that sin deserves. And kill me on the cross. This is why I've come. This is what I'm here for. Jesus is in control. I told you I wanted to uh, give you a different illustration of where I, what I think is a better way of seeing uh, this time in, uh, in our world, in our lives. We're not in a car going downhill backwards with no one at the wheel. Yes, that's what it feels like. <laughs> that's not what's going on. And we know this because uh, Jesus, multiple times, as well as uh, many of the books written later in the New Testament, tells the same thing. 
Anytime talking about what's coming down the road, it's, it's trouble, right? There's going to be trouble. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be people who turn away from God, and this is what it's going to look like. We've been told these things. And so I think the better image than a car going downhill backwards with no one at the wheel is like a, uh, a commercial airliner that's being piloted through turbulence on purpose by an excellent pilot. And he comes on uh, the PA system and he says, ladies and gentlemen, we are about to go through some turbulence and it's going to be a pretty rough ride, but it's okay. We will, we will come through the other side. And you know, if you've ever been on a plane that has something like that happen, everybody goes, oh, okay. And then you hit the turbulence. <laughs> and it feels like we're all going to die doesn't it? And everybody starts reacting in their various ways. (laughs) But I think that is the image. Um, We're not the ones who are at, uh, at the controls, but there is someone who is, and he can be trusted. And so uh, hopefully as you go forward and you see, continue to see things uh, on the news that make it look like the whole world's out of control or whether you experience things in your own life that makes it th- seem like things in your own life are just out of control, remember that God is still at the controls, that he still is in control, that his ways are not our ways, <laughs> but he can be trusted, uh, and he is good. Um, so with that in mind, what do we do? Because it's not, uh, we're not called to do nothing. We were called to participate in the ministry that Jesus has given us. And part of that means rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Right? That's where it begins. And then out of that, to walk following the way of Jesus determining where his way is different than ours and continually rejecting our own way and following him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made, and God, we thank you that you are still in control. God, I pray that you would help us when uh, we start to panic when we start to react in our usual fight or flight patterns. God, we pray that you would help us. Help us to remember that you are still in control, that we can still trust you, that we can trust your goodness, that we can trust your love, that we can trust your power over everything else that this world has to throw uh, at you or at us. Or we ask that you would Help us. Help us to know what your way is and help us to follow your way. Help us to truly believe that your way is the best way. I pray all this in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. 
us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.